Hey, I'm Michael and I serve with our creative team. And I'm Hannah and I serve with our student team at our West Chicago campus. Michael, over the last few months, we've had a lot of people who have been coming here for the first time or just coming back for the first time in a long time, which is awesome. How did you get connected whenever you were new at a church? Well, being on staff here was a little bit different, but True. when I was at a church in Oak Park and we were new there, um, one of the things we did was go to this thing called the freeway that they had. Ooh, that sounds fancy. It was. It was really nice. You got to meet with a pastor, got to ask some questions about the church, learn some things, and then also get connected with a volunteer or a small group. Wow, that sounds super awesome. And I know Beaten Bible, we don't have something called the freeway, but we do have something called the growth track. Have you heard of it? I have, and it sounds almost identical to the freeway. And it basically is. So if you are new here and you've been wanting to connect here at Wheaton Bible Church and maybe get some more information of what's going on here, what it looks like to get connected, or just start out connecting with others, we would love to invite you to the growth track. And it starts next Sunday at 1 p.m. So you can get more information at our website at wheatonbible.org slash growth track. Yeah. Well, if you're not going to be going to the growth track, one of the things that I like to do on a Sunday afternoon is get a nice nap. Mm, you're recharge. a napper. Yep. I am not a napper. Physically incapable. Well, I think you should try it. I mean. But if you, whether you get a nap or not, I guess you can come to the prayer night. So you're about to hear me say that it's at 7 o'clock. It's not. It's at 5 o'clock. So we'll see you at the prayer night at 5 o'clock. At 7 o'clock that night. Yes. I love prayer nights at Wheaton Bible Church because I think it's a super great opportunity for just our entire church body to gather and pray over our church to pray for our communities, to pray for our nation. And so if you're wanting to come to our prayer night, it's next Sunday, March 7th at 7 p.m. Yeah. We'd love to see you there. Do register ahead of time um, just so that we are able to keep all of our social distancing and all of that together. Yeah, well, I think that's all we have for y'all. So thanks for spending part of your weekend with us and we hope you have an amazing week. All right, good morning, familia. As many of you know, uh, this month is a special month because we, se- we get to celebrate as a nation Black History Month. And it, it is during this month that we, we remember the achievements of the African-American community and their contribution um, and their central role to the history of our nation. But I think that as Christians, we have to celebrate that, but we have to celebrate even more. Because as Christians, we ought to celebrate that the Lord in, uh, in his providence have raised an African-American community of pastors and teachers and people that have contributed to the Christianity in the United States of America. Therefore, today, we want to honor and remember and celebrate a group of people that belong to the African-American community uh, that we are so grateful for because we know that the Lord has used them for his glory and our good. So today we want to remember and celebrate Richard Allen, one of, the, one of America's most active and influential ministers, educators, writers, and leaders who mobilized the black community to serve the sick and the dying during the Philadelphia's yellow fever epidemic. We want to remember and celebrate Harriet Tubman, and a spirit-led warrior who led hundreds of slaves to freedom through the Underground Railroad saying, Lord, I'm going to hold steady unto you, and you got to see me through, and the Lord did. Today we remember and celebrate Dr. Gardner Taylor, an American Baptist preacher known as the Dean of the Nation's Black Preachers, who shaped a generation of preachers and God's people with his poetic preaching as well as his deep understanding of faith and theology. 
Today we remember and we celebrate Mahalia Jackson, an American gospel singer who is widely considered one of the most influential vocalists of the 20th century and sang at the historic march in Washington at the request of Dr. King. Today we remember and celebrate Tom Skinner, a former gang leader in Harlem who was radically transformed by the power of the gospel and became a powerful evangelist in more than 70 different countries sharing the gospel for over 30 years. Today we also celebrate and remember people like Dr. Luther King Jr., Dr. John Perkins, Drs. Brian and Crawford Loretz, Dr. Charlie Dates, and of course, for me, my personal, very personal, a Bible teacher and artist, Jackie Hill Perry, among so many others. Now, the question for many of us may be, why do we take the time to celebrate this? And this is my answer to you all. Because we are grateful that we have a king of glory, that in Jesus Christ came to establish a multicolored, multi-ethnic, multicultural kingdom, a kingdom in which people of every nation and tribe and language and ethnicity reflect the image and the beauty of God. That's why we celebrate this. We celebrate today as a church because we have a God that we can say to him, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory. And the church says... Bible, with that truth, can we stand together this morning and lift our voices to this King of glory who's worthy of our praise today. Come on, lift it up, one voice. There is a King. Sitting on a high throne, he rules the world and all of history he owns. His name is Jesus. As come on, we say, we stand as one as the people of the cross. We're marching on for the victory is won. Our King is Jesus. Our King is Jesus. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ, the King of glory. No kingdoms fall. Children of the Lord, our hope is Jesus. Every day, every moment, what you begin, we are sure you will complete. And by your spirit, everything will be set free in the name of Jesus. Jesus Christ, the King of glory. 
This is our song. Come on. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ, the King of glory. Go kingdoms fall.
We have a God that nothing is too strong for him. There is no failure, there is no trial, there is no grief that he cannot turn around. And in what we've just sung, that we will see a victory can be difficult to believe. I'm sure there are many people in this room right now that are having trouble believing that they're gonna see a victory. That even just singing that line right now was hard for you. Maybe you couldn't even do it. And I wanna remind you that you have a God who sees you, who meets you where you are. That whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're dealing with right, right now, whatever is making it difficult to believe that we are victorious, He knows. He is beside you, he is carrying you. In the deepest pit, he is with you. And even now you can praise him. Even now you can trust him. 
Psalm 34, 17 through 19 says, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them and he delivers them from all of their troubles. He is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Are you crushed? He saves you. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from all of them, every single one. This is our God. We can trust him in the valley. We can choose to praise him in the pit because he hears you and he saves you and he will be victorious, which means you will be victorious, church. We can count on this. Lord, we can count on you. Thank you, Jesus.
church, we lift this up. This is our declaration. We sing this together. of who you are. The only reason we can declare this, God, is because what you've done. Lord, it's because you are perfectly good. It's because you are perfectly faithful. Lord, it's because you are victorious that we can sing these words, that we can choose to praise. It's because of you, Jesus. Lord, would you remind us of your love? Would you remind us of your presence? And Lord, no matter what we are going through, Lord, we choose to praise your name because you are good, because you love us. Lord, we surrender it right now. We surrender all to you. We trust you, Lord. In your precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen, church. You may be seated. All right, church, and the celebration continues. So I'm going to invite, please, Matthew McNeil to come to the front and Saul Flores to come to the front. Uh, if you have been part of the church for a while, you probably know that we have a ministry called Puente del Pueblo that started tw uh, 12 years ago. Um, part of the reason why I'm here is because um, the Lord called me to be part of this team that put Puente del Pueblo together. And one of the things that we knew right from the beginning is that in order for us to be successful in how to love our neighbors and our community would be to hire the right person for the job. And this is how the Lord brought to us uh, Matthew McNeil that has been the director, kind of the founder and director of Puente for 12 years now. And I have so many beautiful things to say about Matthew. Uh, I remember the first, time, the first time I saw him, I was like, man, that's a good looking man. He's like the American version of Jesus. And um, I didn't say that in the first service. Uh, and Matthew has so many different qualities, but the three top qualities for me is that he loves the Lord, he loves the church, and he really, 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 really loves people. And part of the reason why the Lord called him to do this is because he has, he has this heart for the, uh, toward the immigrant and, and the stranger and the widow and the poor and the one that is afflicted. And that's why the Lord called, us, uh, called him to be with us for 12 years. Now, this is kind of a bittersweet uh, situation because uh, the Lord now is calling Matthew to do something else. As you know, Puente del Pueblo is this partnership between Witten Bible Church and Outreach Community Center in Witten. Uh, we're in different locations, right? But now the Lord is calling Matthew to have a bigger responsibility with Outreach. So, Matthew, can you share with us a little bit of what you, you're going to be doing during uh, your new season in life? Yeah, thank you so much, Hannibal. Um, before I share about my transition, I just want to thank the church 
for 12 years. Uh, from my family's heart to yours, thank you so much. Your missional commitment, sacrificial giving um, to launch and execute the work of Puente de Pueblo in the community has been so meaningful, so impactful to the kingdom of God in our neighborhoods that surround this building. Um, it's a huge testimony. You have authenticated the gospel of Jesus. So thank you so much. Um, in my new role, you know, Outreach Community Ministries operates several uh, community center services like Puente del Pueblo, and I'll have the pleasure of giving leadership to all of those, which means that I am excited to report that I get to stay on Puente's leadership team here at Wheaton Bible Church and supervise our new director, Saul Flores. Give it up for Saul. So Saul started in 2014 with Puente del Pueblo. He launched from nothing the college high school and college opportunity program, which now has 50 students, a whole bunch of staff and volunteers, a bunch of students from our community who were first in the family, college attenders are now in college. He's done an amazing job. He's absolutely the right guy to take us into our next season. So uh, I'm really excited about him. If you want to get to know Saul as a biblical thinker, grab the devotions, the weekly devotions on the way out. He wrote them this week. Um, and so why don't you share with us some prayer requests that we have for Puente coming up. Definitely. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you for those words. And um, church, uh, I'm super excited for what it's got about to do with Puente or continue doing with Puente. But one thing you can pray for us is definitely a, a time of harvest. I believe 12 years have an authenticated or testimony in this town. And people know Puente del Pueblo and this church for our service to the community. But it's also time to keep going on that growth and harvest. So pray for boldness so we can continue sharing the name of Jesus Christ in our town. I think it's important that you know that the way I feel about Matthew is exactly the same way I feel about Saul. I think that the Lord brought him here. I think that he's got a heart that is required for what the Lord is calling you to do. Actually, one of the quick things that you might know is that uh, Saul was a pastor for a long time, so he's got a pastor's heart. So tell me a little bit, how is it that you're going to use your pastor heart now for this new season in your life? Definitely. Um, so I went to seminary, and I love sharing the Word of God. We planted a church down in Mexico City. Uh, my wife and I decided to move to the States for some health reasons for her. And uh, as we were looking for a church, we just connected with Whitton Bible Church and with the mission of Puente spe specifically. And uh, that's where our heart has been. So we definitely search for sharing our heart of Jesus with, of Jesus with the people. Amen. So I'm going to ask you to please continue to pray for the ministry. Please continue to pray for Puente. Uh, pray, uh, pray for Matthew as he's transitioning out to this new role. Uh, pray for Saul and his family as they're transitioning also. Well, you already transitioned, but as he continues to transition this. And um, I, I want to remind you that this is part of the reason why the Lord calls us to be so generous. Not just because this is an act of adoration, not only because this is what we ought to do as Christians, but because this is what the Lord uses. And this is how we use the money here at church for the glory of his name, the joy of Christians, and to serve and love other people. So could you please pray with me? We're going to pray for Puente and all these things that are coming up. Lord, we are so grateful that we have a God that cares for, the, for our community. That is not a God that just cares for Christians, but for anybody that is in our communities as Christians. We thank you, Lord, that you have a heart, Lord, for the afflicted and the poor and the vulnerable and the widow and the stranger and the alien, Lord, and the immigrant. 
I pray, Lord, that you continue, that you continue to help us um, fulfill our call. I want to bring before you, Lord, uh, Matthew and his family as they transition into this new role. Please continue to use him the way you have been using him here at WBC. Please continue, Lord, to use him as a prophetic voice in our community and in the church. And now we thank you, Lord, for Saul and his heart and his family. And I pray, Lord, that you give him a kind of a double portion of your spirit as he's stepping into this new role. Please use him in mighty ways, Lord, not only for us to, to show the love of Christ, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, we come before you asking you to do the same in all of us as Christians, that we witness to your name, that we give you glory, that we love others. And now, Lord, we pray that you speak to us, that you speak uh, through your word. Please use Josh as he's bringing the word this morning. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says, how about we give these guys a round of applause again. Well, good morning, Wheaton Bible. It is good to see you. It's good to be with you. Let's go ahead and extend a warm welcome to those who are connecting with us online this morning. And one of the things that we would love for you to do who are connecting with us online, just, just put in the chat like where you are connecting with us from. We, we'd love to, to see the reach uh, that God has Wheaton Bible reaching to the ends of the earth. Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. We are in our series, The Upper Room Discourse, where we are looking at really the final moments, the final events, the, the final teachings of Jesus pre-cross. And so he's up in the upper room teaching the disciples, uh, dialoguing, discussing with them on things that are coming up, uh, things that are about to happen, what he's about to do, where he's about to go. And I want us to kind of put ourselves in the disciples' shoes sandals they didn't have shoes back then right and so let's just think about it like you've just spent three three and a half years with Jesus you believe that he is the son of God you believe that he is the Messiah the one who has come to establish God's kingdom that he is the Christ that the Old Testament was pointing to but now you're in the upper room and you've just failed the pop quiz about what it means to be a servant right they didn't quite understand the whole foot washing thing. Jesus had to actually take the bowl and start washing their feet. And he tells them, what I've done, you need to do. And then he talks about the betrayal that's going to happen. So uh, there's a person in their midst, one of the band of brothers, they're going to deny, uh, not just deny, but betray him. And so that kind of wigs them out. And then he kind of turns to Peter. And he's like, Peter, you're actually going to deny me before the rooster crows. Now what the rooster has to do with it, not much other than it's going to crow three times and by that time Peter will have denied Jesus three times and then he also tells the disciples now don't 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 you uh kind of start like patting yourself on the back because uh, you're going to scatter as well and then he starts talking to them about the spirit of God and how he's going to send the spirit of God he has to go so that he can send the spirit and I'm going to go back to the father and so if you could just imagine there is a lot that is happening in these few hours and they're overwhelmed, they're confused, they're troubled. 
It, it kind of reminds me of a roller coaster ride. They're, they're on a emotional, mental, theological roller coaster. Now, here's the thing I know about roller coasters. The older I get, the less I love roller coasters. Any, any adults out there feeling the same way? Yeah, I, I used to, <laughs> growing up, I'm like, I can't wait to get on the roller coaster. Now I cannot wait to get off a roller coaster. But, but this is the disciples. They're, they're on this emotional and mental and theological roller coaster. They're overwhelmed. They're troubled. Kind of reminds me of life. Now, I don't know where you are. I don't know if you're troubled. I don't know if you're overwhelmed. I don't know if you're confused. Uh, I don't know if you're perplexed about what, you know, what, what's going on in your life. But here's what I would say is that the disciples, they're kind of overwhelmed. They're kind of troubled. They're, they're on this kind of roller coaster journey. And here's what I want us to tackle this morning. Here is the main point. To overcome the troubles in this world, you will need to be overwhelmed with the peace of God. If you're going to overcome the troubles of this world, you will need to be overwhelmed by the peace of God. And what we will look at this morning are really the last words of Jesus in this upper discourse towards his disciples. Now, this isn't the end of the series because we're going to be looking at Jesus's high priestly prayer over the next few weeks. But what he says to his disciples are the last words of the discourse there in the upper room. So will you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? And we're just going to read one verse. John 16, verse 33. And Jesus says these words, I have told you these things so that in me you might have, everybody say it, peace. Peace. Now, you will have trouble in this world. It's so funny. You will have peace, hey, but you're going to have troubles in this world. But, what's the next two words? Take heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be glorified. Spirit, will you move in our midst? Will you move with those who are connecting with us online? Uh, would you draw us to Jesus? Uh, Spirit, will you shape and conform and mold us more into the image of Jesus? Jesus, we want you. You are our King. You are our Lord. We submit and we surrender to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're, we're going to look at three things uh, this morning. We're going to basically answer three questions. What and who brings us overwhelming peace? How we can have overwhelming peace? And when do we know we have overwhelming peace? So question number one, what and who brings us overwhelming peace? We'll look at the first part of verse 33. Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Now, here's what's quite interesting, is that there's been a few times in this discourse where Jesus utters the phrase, I have told you these things, or I've told you this. Like in chapter 13, verse 19, he says, I'm telling you now before it happens, so when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. 
In chapter 15, verse 11, we read, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. We read in chapter 16, verse 1, All this I have told you that you will not fall away. And now we get to this part where Jesus says, I've told you these things so that you might have peace. Now, you have to ask this question as you're reading through that discourse, well, what are these things? What are these things? What are these words that Jesus is telling them? What what is he getting at when he's telling them these things? Well, here's the answer, doctrine. He's getting at doctrine. He is teaching them the doctrine or the doctrines of the Christian life. He's teaching them what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of uh, Jesus. And just so that we're on the same page, uh, doctrine is belief or a set of beliefs held and taught by a church, by a political party, or by a group. Now, so when you look at chapters 13 through 16... And you see those places where Jesus says, I've told you these things. These doctrines, according to Jesus, bring about faith and belief, bring about joy, bring about confidence, and then bring about peace. Now, obviously, we have dealt with belief and faith and joy and confidence in the previous messages in this series. So let's dig a little bit deeper into this idea of peace. Now, peace particularly in the English language, doesn't fully capture what peace in the Greek and in the Hebrew meant. You see, the Greek word for peace means harmony, tranquility, well-being. You know, peace isn't just the absence of conflict. It's not just the absence of hostility. It carries with it the notion of contentment, of wholeness, of rest. Uh, The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And I'm sure you have heard that here at Wheaton Bible, that the Hebrew word for peace is shalom, where scholars explain shalom as the total flourishing of all creation. Meaning every realm, every sphere throughout the cosmos in our life experiences shalom, experiences total flourishing, completeness, wholeness, harmony, tranquility. That's shalom. Well, Josh, is there a picture of shalom? Yeah, actually there is. In Genesis 1:31, and God looked at his creation. He saw all that he had made and he said it was very what? good so he looks at his creations like it functions according to its design the way I designed it it functions perfectly Uh, humanity he's placed them in the garden and he looks at them and they're very good they're they're in harmony with one another they're experiencing tranquility and wholeness and well-being in the garden they're experiencing harmony and tranquility with God God looks at his creation and he sees shalom he sees peace Now, but Adam and Eve, they sinned, they rebelled, they committed treason against the high king. And what happened when they sinned is that they unraveled peace. They unraveled unraveled the order, the perfection, the completeness, the shalom of creation. That's what sin did. And that's what sin does. Everything that God had made that was ordered, that was at peace, now because of sin, it is unraveling. There's chaos and disorder. 
Therefore, it unraveled the peace between God and man. It created friction and conflict between man and man or woman and man. That's the reason why some of you, you know, that are married, you got some conflict in your marriage. Well, sin, thank you very much, right? It created fear of the other. It created conflicts and battles and wars, domination and oppression. It injected a disease in creation whereby creation now projects elements of disorder and chaos, which is why we have tsunamis, uh, hurricanes, blizzards, uh, you know, that really, really bring about a polar vortex that this southerner is getting accustomed to. It created restlessness in individuals leading to an identity crisis, not being at peace with who you are, why you are here on planet Earth. That's what sin did. You see, sin leads to no peace, no shalom, no total flourishing. Yet, as human beings, we long for completeness. We long for shalom. We long for peace, which is why Throughout the history of humanity, they have created worldviews in which to look at the world. And within those worldviews, they have created doctrines and theologies and philosophies to help them make sense of life. What life is, what you do in life, and how you flourish in life. So think about it this way. The, the worldviews are basically like a house. It's, it's where, where you live. That's a worldview. One scholar put it this way. Worldviews are integrative and interpretive frameworks by which order and disorder are judged. They are the stands by which reality is managed and pursued. They are the set of hinges on which all our everyday thinking and doing turns. So that's a worldview. It's a way of looking and ordering your world, bringing, bringing what, what is real to an understanding. But then in a house, there are rooms. There are various kinds of rooms. Well, those rooms are doctrines, theologies, philosophies that help you understand what the room was designed for. And then the more you can understand that room, the more you can apply it and flesh it out in your life to bring about peace and harmony and tranquility and well-being. Well... When we think about doctrine, I think C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he gives us a good understanding of doctrine, of theology. Uh, theology is like a map. Doctrine or doctrines are like a map that help you see God more clearly. Well, let's apply that logic across disciplines, across worldviews that have their own doctrines and philosophies. So doctrines and philosophies not only help you see God more clearly, but they are there to help you see life more clearly, culture more clearly, society more clearly, help you understand relationships more clearly. And so when you put together worldview, doctrines, philosophies, and theologies, and then you start to apply them, you ought to ask yourself, do they bring about peace? Do they bring out shalom? Do they bring out completeness and harmony and tranquility? 
And see, when you look at the philosophies and the doctrines of the world, whether they be like philosophies like humanism, rationalism, existentialism, stoicism, scientism, hedonism, nihilism, when you look at political doctrines like Marxism, socialism, capitalism, libertarianism, communism, here's the question that you have to ask as a human being longing for peace and shalom. Do those doctrines, do those theologies bring about an overwhelming peace, not only in our individual lives, but in our communities, in our cities, in our nations, throughout the world? Do those doctrines, do those philosophies not only have the ability to articulate how they're going to bring about peace, but do they have the power to bring about overwhelming peace? And let me go ahead and give you the answer. I think you know it, but do they? No. But I mean, this is what's so amazing. Our world is bickering and they're arguing over these doctrines that they think bring about peace. And here's the thing that we also know as historians when it comes to the Enlightenment era where men thought they could just bring about peace because of their own ingenuity and creativity. The Enlightenment experience failed. I ran across an article this past week. It was a very fascinating article and here was the title. How non-religious worldviews provide solace in times of crisis. Okay, here's what what the researcher said. I wanted to explore the idea that while non-believers may not hold religious beliefs, they still hold distinct ontological, epistemological, and ethical beliefs about reality. Doctrine. And the idea that these secular beliefs and worldviews provide, listen to this, listen, These worldviews, secular beliefs, provide the non-religious with equivalent sources of meaning or similar coping mechanisms as supernatural beliefs of religious individuals. And let me just tell tell this researcher uh, by by way of a pastor, uh, you're wrong. It's not similar. And you know why? Well, I know why because of what I'm, I'm about to say. But when it comes to sources of meaning, similar uh, coping mechanisms, listen, we couldn't be further from what this researcher is saying when it comes to those who hold Christian doctrine. Now, why is that? Well, I'm glad that you asked. I want you to look in verse 28. Because verse 28 gives a great summary of the doctrines that Jesus has taught his disciples in this passage. Here's what verse 28 says says, I came from the Father, I entered the world, now I'm leaving the world and I'm going back to the Father. In this brief sentence, Jesus provides for his disciples, for us, essential doctrines that actually lead to overwhelming peace. And what are those doctrines? Once again, I'm so glad that you asked that question. You are on top of it this morning there, Wheaton Bible. Here are those doctrines. First, you have the incarnation. The incarnation. It's Jesus' divinity. He came from the Father. That Jesus is not just a man. He is the God-man. And he came to dwell among humanity. 
Throughout scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, the very first book of the Bible to the very end of the Bible, God has been aiming at dwelling with humanity. And we see in the incarnation, God's ultimate desire to dwell with humanity. And the word of God became flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld the glory of God. And also in the incarnation is wrapped up God's love. But then we also have the doctrines of the inauguration of an invitation into the kingdom of God. It says Jesus entered the world. And if you see the beginning of Jesus' ministry, what does he say? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What is he doing? He is inaugurating the kingdom of God and that the only way to get in the kingdom is through repentance. It's through this change of heart that you've got to turn from your wicked ways and you've got to embrace Jesus. You've got to embrace the God-man. He inaugurated. So every sign that Jesus performed, like even multiplying bread, because think about it this way. If you have a God who can multiply, multiply bread, that kingdom will have no hunger. And then he would heal the disease and those with sickness, uh, signifying that in the kingdom of God there is no sick. There are no diseases. And then he raised the dead, like Lazarus. And what is he signifying? In God's kingdom there is life. So Jesus, he is inviting people into the inaugural kingdom of God. But then we also have the doctrine of substitutionary atonement and redemption. He is leaving the world and he's going back to the Father, which signifies something that is complete, that he, he, uh, he accomplished what he had set out to do. And here's what we know he came to do. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to offer his life as a ransom for many. And in that, we see this idea of substitutionary atonement where Jesus gave his life for ours. Jesus took upon the wrath of God in our place. He was the perfect sacrifice to do that once and for all. And then wrapped up is is redemption, which includes justification, sanctification, glorification. It's the forgiveness of sin. It's the imputation of Jesus' righteousness, meaning that when you follow Jesus and I follow Jesus, Jesus imputes his righteousness. He imputes his heart into our lives so that when the Father looks at us, he sees Jesus' heart. And then he sends the Spirit, which is the indwelling Spirit of Christ. And what is the Spirit? Spirit do? Well, we learned last week that the Spirit convicts and conforms. And if you will look in chapter 20, he commissions disciples for mission. So all of those doctrines are wrapped up in the statement, I came from the Father, entered the world, now I'm leaving and going back to the Father. And wrapped up in those doctrines should be overwhelming peace for us. Now, I love what Paul Tripp, what he says about doctrines. He writes, Doctrines are a beautiful gift supplied by a God of amazing grace. They are not burdensome, life-constricting beliefs. They impart new life and new freedom. They are the ecosystem in which the garden of personal transformation grows. That's the reason why you should get to know your Bible. Because in the Bible are doctrines that help to explain life. Life under the rule and reign 
of God. But don't miss this. Oh, gosh, don't miss this. Go back to verse 33. I have told you these things so that in who? Oh. You, you see, the reason why these doctrines lead to overwhelming peace, it's not because they're written clearly. It's not because uh, they're just a set of beliefs. They lead to peace because they are found in a person. The reason why Christians can have overwhelming peace in a troubled world isn't because we got the right doctrines. We got the right person. Jesus, he's the embodiment and the fulfillment of these doctrines. So when you get to know your Bible and when you get to understand doctrines, you literally are getting to understand Jesus. Don't miss that. No other doctrine, no other philosophy, whether they be philosophical or political, are wrapped up in a person who is the God-man who came out from the world into the world, died on a cross, rose again. No other philosophy, no other doctrine, no other political teaching has that at the center. That's why Augustine says, because you, God, made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. Now, the second, as you can tell, I'm a little excited about this stuff. But number two is how we have overwhelming peace. Now, just, just, I'm just going to warn you, at the end of this point, I'm, I might do a dance. I might do, just do a little dance, and I have no rhythm. But, but the second point is how we have overwhelming peace. Now, here's what Jesus says. In this world, you will have trouble. Let's just stop right there. So Jesus says, I've, written, I've said these things so that you might have peace, but hey, just, just FYI, you're going to have trouble in this world. That, that's not very comforting. You know what I'm saying? Like you're telling me I'm going to have peace because you said these things, but then in the next very breath, you're like, uh, you're going to be facing trouble. I'm like, oh, gosh. You know, every time I think about that word trouble, I think about Ray LaMontagne's song, Trouble. You know, where, he's, where he starts his song by going, Trouble, 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 trouble. Trouble's been dogging me since the day I was born. See, see, Ray, he understands in this world you will have trouble. Now, the word trouble in the Greek is thelipsis, and it actually has a wide variety of meanings. It can mean persecution, affliction, distress, tribulation, oppression, hard circumstances, anguish, pressure, burden, suffering. So let that sink in. In this world, you'll have trouble. Not, not very comforting. But what is Jesus saying? You will experience the full effects and symptoms of living in a broken and fallen and sinful world. That's what he's saying. So in this world, you will have trouble. When I think about that word, the ellipsis, for some reason, tailspin comes to my mind. So when you think about the troubles of this world, just think about tailspin. Like the world is in a tailspin. Our lives in a tailspin. In this world, you will face tailspins. But, but the next word, like, I, I love this conjunction for some reason, but. But, what does he say? Take heart. 
Take heart, which is it's actually a command. It's an imperative. So take heart actually means be bold, be courageous, be confident, stand firm, don't be afraid. Like I love what Tim Keller says about these two words. It says, dare to believe. In this world, you have philipsises. You will have troubles. You will have tailspins in your life. But take heart. Dare to believe. Dare to believe what? Take heart in what? Here it is. Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world. The way to get overwhelming peace is to stand firm in, to be confident in, to dare to believe in that Jesus has overcome the world. Now, the word overcome, I love that word because it's actually where we get our word today, Nike. Uh, The word Nike means conquer, means victory, means overcomer, right? So if you think about Nike, you have Michael Jordan and LeBron James. They've conquered the basketball court. And you can debate who's the GOAT, who's not, right? And then you've got Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy and even Brooks Kepka, who they have taken the golf you know, the, the golf course and, you know, the golfing world by storm. They've conquered the golf world. You have Ronaldo. He has conquered uh, the soccer field. You have Serena Williams. She has conquered the tennis courts. But guess who the church has that has conquered the world? Jesus. He's just did it. Now, my wife will tell you I do not have a high tolerance of pain. That's debatable. But anytime I have soreness, I just go to the medicine cabinet, pop me a couple ibuprofen, and I'm good to go. Now, over the last, I'd say, five, six weeks, there's been a lot of snow. Now, once again, this southerner is getting really, you know, kind of accustomed to the weather and the snow. Now, you have t- you know, I've heard from some of you, you said, well, it just usually doesn't snow this much. Well, I don't know anything other than what it's done this winter. And here's what I do know is that uh, shoveling snow is actually a workout. Uh, so I have my little Apple Watch. Every time I go outside to shovel, I, 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 you know, just bear with me. I actually, I actually bypass the snowblower and I go for the shovel because you know what? I'm like, if I want to be out here for 45 minutes to 60 minutes, I might as well, I might as well get a workout. So I just go to the shovel and then I start shoveling the driveway. One of the things that I learned this year that you kind of need to when you have a big snowstorm and multiple snowstorms on kind of, you know, top of one another is that you've actually got to shovel your front yard so that you, if you have a dog like we do, he actually has a place to go. It's weird. Like I was, trying, I was trying to tell that to our southern friends and family. Yeah, I'm out there shoveling the front yard. And so here's what I know about shoveling is that uh, after I shovel, I'm going to be sore. So I go into the medicine cabinet, get me a couple ibuprofen so that my soreness, uh, I don't really feel it as much. Josh, why, why do you say this? Uh, because I want you to realize that Jesus, he's not the ibuprofen for the world. He actually removed the things that actually create soreness. You see, I take Zyrtec every day for allergies. Uh, Jesus isn't the Zyrtec for the world. He actually eliminated that which creates allergies. You see, what Jesus did is that he bypassed dealing with the symptoms of trouble and he definitively defeated the structures and systems that produced the trouble. 
That's the reason why he says, in this world you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I've actually overcome the systems and the structures of that which caused trouble. Now, how did he do that? He did it through his sacrificial death and resurrections. That's why the cross is central to our doctrinal beliefs. Jesus dealt with the systems, dealt with the structures at the cross. And it's in his resurrection that he says, I have conquered sin. I have conquered death. I have conquered grave. I have conquered Satan. Which is why it's in Jesus' now, you just have to bear with me because I'm about to get a little excited because I'm about to teach you something here. Is that Jesus' death and resurrection diffuses the cosmos' turmoil due to sin. So Jesus, through his death and resurrection, cosmically and universally does to the universe, to the cosmos, what he did to the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Peace be still. Therefore, we will... Not have to worry. There's coming a time when we won't have to worry about natural disasters, epidemics, or pandemics. Jesus' death and resurrection dismantles the wicked world, the kingdom of man, and its fallen, flawed, and fractured structures and systems. You see, there is coming a day when we won't have to worry about systemic injustice. We won't have to worry about flawed governmental systems. We won't have to worry about corrupt governments and corrupt politicians. We won't have to worry about scandals and conspiracies and riots. We won't have to worry about the collapse of the dollar, the collapse of the economy. We won't have to worry about divided nations, wars or rumors of wars. We won't have to worry about segregated communities and gatherings. We won't have to worry about poverty and homelessness, abortion, or euthanasia. You see, it's in Jesus' death and resurrection that he defeats scheming Satan, the adversary and enemy of God. And it's in Jesus' death and resurrection that he, he, he punches Satan in the mouth, completely destroying him, over, overwhelming him with the peace of God. And as such, there is coming a day we won't have to worry about confusion or deception. We won't have to worry about being skeptical about what is true, what is right. We won't have to worry about being tempted and tried. We won't have to worry about being assaulted and attacked for our faith. It's in Jesus' death and resurrection that he deals with fallen flesh, epitomized by a sinful and wicked heart. You see, it's in Jesus' death and resurrection. He undergoes a cosmic heart transplant for the world where those who follow him, their old heart is removed and they are given Jesus' new heart. It's in Jesus' death and resurrection that we see the cosmic adoption process where those who follow Jesus, they are grafted into the family of God. As such, there is coming a day. We won't have to worry about disappointments, discouragements, and depression. We won't have to worry about looking into the mirror and going, I'm so ugly, I'm so fat. Uh, we won't have to worry about betrayal and abandonment. We won't have to worry about isolation and loneliness, relational strife or estrangement. We won't have to worry about setbacks and defeats, frustrations and failures. We won't have to worry about the thorns and thistles of financial hardship, career setbacks and job losses. We won't have to worry about racism. We won't have to worry about hurts and habits and hangups and hardships and heartaches of life. Why? Jesus has overcome the systems and the structures of sin. But in this world, you'll have trouble. So, Josh, what, what do I do with that? 
you're in the already but not yet. Through his death and resurrection, he's accomplished that. But not yet. And so therefore, and I need, like I needed this this week. Therefore, when we go through troubles, we don't, let, we don't have to let the troubles define us. We don't, let, we don't have to let the troubles debilitate us. And we don't have to let the troubles defeat us. Why? Because he has overcome the world. So how do we have overwhelming peace? We take heart in Jesus' victory. We dare to believe. So the third question is this, and then I'm done. And this will be real quick. When do we know we have overwhelming peace? When do we know? So we know what and who gives us overwhelming peace. We know how to get it, but how do we know we have it? When, when, when is that? Ask yourself these three questions. Number one, do you run to the Father when you're troubled? Do you run to the Father when you're troubled? In verse 23 of chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples, In that day you will no longer ask anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Asking you will, you will receive and your joy will be complete. What Jesus is teaching there is that there is coming a day where they can run straight to the Father. That through his death and resurrection, they don't have to go to Jesus, the mediator. They can actually run to the Father. Now, I know that in the Laxton house, whenever our children are troubled, uh, whether it be internet, whether it be a light goes out, or whether they're hungry, uh, they bypass daddy and they run to mama. Mama, I'm hungry. Fix me something to eat. Mama, the internet's down. Can you reset it? Like, something about my wife is super mom, and so our children run to her for everything. Do you run to the Father in everything? It's why, it's why Paul writes in Philippians 4, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. Do you run to the Father? The second question is this, does your grief give way to joy? Does your grief give way to joy? Here's what Jesus says in verse, verses 16, 20, 21, and 22. In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. It's kind of like playing hide and go seek. <laughs> in a little while you'll see me, a little while you won't, but yeah. So, Verse 20, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And then he gives this illustration of a woman giving birth to a child, and during pregnancy there's these pains there's these birth pains and even in the the birthing process there's these pains of childbirth but then after the baby is delivered and the mama grabs the baby there's immense joy and she forgets about the pain and what Jesus is teaching his disciples you will have grief in this world but that grief it will be replaced it will give way to joy because you'll be thinking to yourself in just a little while longer. In this world, we will have trouble. 
In this world, we will have affliction. In this world, we'll have pressure. In this world, we'll have hardships. In this world, we'll have cancer. In this world, we'll have conflict. In this world, uh, we'll have corrupt governments. In this world, we will have trouble. But when you face that trouble and you are overcome with sorrow, you're overcome with grief, you just say to yourself, you speak this truth over your life just a little while longer, just a little while longer, just a little while longer. And Jesus will make all things new. That's why I love Hebrews 12. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How could Jesus have such joy in the midst of such trouble and anguish? Because he knew what was coming. See, shalom is coming. And then the third question is this. Do you live out your purpose of being sent in the world while avoiding not being of the world? Do you know one of the, I would say, main reasons why Christians have a hard time of having peace in a troubled world is because they straddle two worlds as opposed to being in one and of another. Like Jesus tells us to be in the world but not of it. And what that means is that he has saved us and sent us back into the world. And here's what we read in John 20, 21. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. The reason why we can have peace and when we, when we know we have peace, we live sent lives on mission from the Father. Just the way he sent the Son on mission to the world. So, when you run to the Father, when you see that your sorrow and your grief is turned to joy, and when you live sent lives, that's when you know that you have overcome the troubles of this world because you have been overwhelmed by the peace of God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being our peace. Thank you for being our shalom for being our completeness, our well-being, our harmony, our tranquility, our rest. May we apply that truth, may we apply that doctrine to our life that we might have peace in a troubling world. Amen, church. Let's stand and sing together about the hope and the peace that we find in a person person of Jesus Christ, our living hope. is finished.
It is well. 
Sure, there's probably many of you, many of you connecting with this online, if not all of us, we needed to know that he was with us in the storm. He's there. In this world, you'll have trouble. Know you're loved. I don't know what you're going through, but you can sing that song, it is well with my soul. In John 20, verse 19, this will be our benediction. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. Their trouble. Got the doors locked. Jesus, he came and he stood among them and here's what he said. Peace be with you. Shalom. After he said this, he showed them, here it is the resurrection. He showed them his hands and side, and the disciples were overjoyed. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. He says it again. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. You see, it's in that one scene where Jesus will meet us in our troubles. He will speak peace over us in our troubles. And then he will send us out in peace, in the power of the Spirit, to accomplish what God has sent us to do. So may you go in peace. May you be sent to be the salt and light of the world. For the Spirit of God is with you and moving in and through you. Wheaton Bible, you are sent.